Well, neither Jay's team nor my team move forward in the NFL playoffs, and along with Cousin Sal, I am in mourning for the loss by the Dallas Cowboys. But Jay and I are back to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories on This Week in FCPA. I hope you will check out one of the latest additions to the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, where host Gwen Hassan looks at the scourge of modern slavery and human trafficking and what you, the compliance professional, can do from the corporate perspective. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself for This Week in FCPA, episode 287 for the week ending, January 21, 2022, the Activism Blizzard Sold Edition. As both Jay and Tom's team were unceremoniously kicked out of the playoffs this past weekend, we are back humbled to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories in this week in FCPA, the Activision Blizzard Sold Edition. So, with a big welcome to our worldwide fans watching us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and whatever other platform you might be on, welcome. Uh, and for those who are listening to the audio portion of this podcast, welcome. Jay, what say ye? I say that although we are a TikTok house here, so my girls listen to, I want to hear all about what's happening with Microsoft and Activision Blizzard. Give us the scoop. So this was uh, the big deal of the week, Jay. Uh, somewhere between 70 and $69 billion bid by Microsoft for Activision Blizzard uh, in an all-cash deal. Uh, hopefully you and I will see one of those kind of all-cash deals down the road. But um, really interesting. And obviously... Uh, Microsoft took advantage of a distressed asset, and that distressed asset is Activision Blizzard. You and I have visited about their uh, foobars and imbroglios several times on This Week in FCPA. We've explored them on everything compliance. Matt Kelly and I have taken a deep dive in compliance into the weeds, and a wide variety of other commentators have looked at the toxic culture, um, idiot CCO, uh, recidivist CEO, there's a wide variety of other things going on with Activision Blizzard. But Microsoft saw an opportunity and apparently in December 2021 approached um, the CEO, the embattled CCO of Activision Blizzard, uh, made an offer, which he turned down, but said, come back with a higher price, which they did, and he accepted. Uh, so it uh, looks like the CEO is going to cash out potentially for $350 million. Uh, no word about the CCO. Um, and what she may get out of this, but I'm sure it's a pretty penny. Nevertheless, uh, the, the reason it's in a compliance-related podcast, Jay, is we have to think that Microsoft is going into this deal with eyes wide open, and uh, w- eyes wide open into the, to the toxic culture of Activision Blizzard. Certainly the C- CCO, the CEO, and those who've been involved in the entire imbroglios over the past 2021 and beyond, will be uh, cashed out, given golden parachutes, and said, thank you very much. And they will not be a part of the Microsoft culture going forward. But Microsoft's got a lot of work to do to change the culture at Activision Blizzard. Um, there's going to be millions paid in fines and penalties around sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, and a wide variety of other claims. 
that are being investigated by a wide variety of state and federal agencies. Uh, I certainly hope and suspect that Microsoft will carve out part of the purchase price to pay those fines and penalties, if not taking a discount on the stock uh, value because of those. Nevertheless, a very bold move by Microsoft. And Microsoft wants to use this. Activision Blizzard obviously is a gaming company. It's not very clear uh, at this point how Activision Blizzard would help them move into either uh, Web 3.0 or the metaverse, but uh, they're a gaming company, and they're a very successful gaming company. And uh, I know you have toyed with gaming off and on in your uh, various careers on the West Coast, and that um, it's big bucks. And to have an asset of the quality of games that Activision Blizzard creates, I think is a, it would be a plus and is for anyone and is a plus for Microsoft. So uh, it's going to be very interesting, Jay, from the compliance perspective. How do you assess in pre-acquisition due diligence? Obviously, we don't know. Uh, we'll, more, more will be revealed uh, because they're, uh, both Microsoft and Activision Blizzard will have to go to the regulators for a wide variety of issues, including antitrust, both in the United States and in, in the EU. Uh, but Microsoft has a big job on its plate to integrate, uh, obviously, such a toxic culture. And, uh, I, you know, you and I both know folks in the Microsoft Compliance Department, uh, although they have gone through their own FCPA uh, enforcement actions, we both believe uh, that uh, Microsoft's Compliance Department is, is literally first-rate, have used that analytics extensively for many years, and we're really on the cutting edge of that. So uh, going to be a big, uh, a big chore for Microsoft, but uh, it's uh, definitely a dis was Activision Blizzard was a distressed asset because of these uh, violations uh, that they had, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it moves forward. What's uh, maybe do you have a buzz from uh, the West Coast, or do you have a different insight because you have looked at some of these types of businesses over the years? I wanted to throw a softball your way, and uh, lots of times we're talking about success or liability when the acquirer goes into the transaction and doesn't know how deep the corruption or how big of the problems are. But it almost seems the way you've articulated this transaction, Microsoft has turned this into a positive, that they saw a shrinking stock price and they thought they could come in. So they've got to be pretty confident that they're going to be able to, um, you know, get through the successor liability issues because I believe there's a $3 billion with a B breakup fee. Would you agree with that? With regard to successor liability, uh, my sense would be that uh, Microsoft is going into this with eyes open and that they will work very hard to ring fence off any conduct which might uh, be viewed as nefarious or not meeting really any um, uh, of the criteria for uh, resolution of it. So um, in terms of the, uh, the breakup fee, uh, uh, I can't see this not going through, Jay. I just, and uh, in terms of the antitrust issues, uh, although Microsoft is in the gaming space, um, I don't see this as really uh, limiting consumers' ability to make choices or uh, 
perhaps moving to an anti-competitive stance that the regulators might um, feel uncomfortable with. It may be that certain portions of my uh, Activision Blizzard are spun off or some other uh, concessions made to the antitrust division and in the EU, uh, hopefully affiliated monitors will be able to come in and monitor those uh, to ensure antitrust compliance. But that's perhaps a conversation for a different day. But I, I think your point, Jay, is spot on. Eyes wide open. And, uh, you know, if you and I can articulate some of these, we, we both believe that Microsoft not only knew about them just by reading the press coverage, but uh, any... Uh, due diligence they did and, and, and say they didn't do any before they, they moved forward other than what was in the public record. You know they're looking at everything and are unturning over or turning over every rock they can uh, right now up until time of closing. So it's going to be a, a heady time in terms of workload and a heady time after the acquisition closes for Microsoft. But uh, I I feel confident that Microsoft has a shot at pulling this off, Jay. Cool. Well, thank you for that insight, Tom. Uh, first of two coming to us from the FCPA blog from a good friend of the podcast, Dick Casson. Dick takes a look at how the virus undid corruption risks models. Assessing corruption risks starts with determining the likely degree of interaction with government officials. If a transaction or project doesn't require interaction, corruption risk is essentially nothing. As interactions increase, so too does the corruption risk. Organizations become adept at quantifying the likely degree of interactions with government officials. Risk experts use historical data from the same or similar transactions and projects in the same or similar countries. These models, using risk factors such as country histories, industry data, third-party involvement, produce risk assessments that organizations rely on to design many of their compliance procedures. Since COVID-19, however, predicting the likely degree of interaction with officials has become difficult and sometimes impossible. The pandemic forced governments and agencies to change the when and the how they interact with users, and this result is that government functions are less predictable and more ad hoc. It is impossible yet to quantify the degree to which actual interactions with government officials have changed, but there are clues. Policy experts and diplomats have advised governments to open cross-border back channels to help manage pandemic crises. In the new ad hoc regulatory world, compliance officers have lost their best tool to evaluate interactions, historical data. Before COVID, interactions usually followed predictable patterns. Now, with so many ad hoc interactions, comparisons with prior patterns have become essentially meaningless. Companies can somewhat mitigate the ad hoc environment's uncertainty when interactions involve compliance-trained employees, but ad hoc interactions involving third parties are harder to assess. In a sense, the pandemic has provided perfect cover for agents and corrupt officials to meet and make illegal arrangements. So how should companies and their compliance officers respond? It's no easy answer. Budgets are limited and compliance personnel are already in short supply. Dick thinks that still compliance officers can use existing safeguards and internal controls. They can require government interactions to be pre-approved, logged and reported, and they can also prioritize their review of spending requests related to interaction with government officials. In some cases, they can restrict the company's use of agents and impose additional restrictions on the company when the company retains them. 
In all, training sessions, officers, compliance officers can more than ad hoc interactions with government officials create more opportunity for graft. And that despite massive disruptions and new or unorthodox ways of doing business, the company's tolerance at the end of the day is still zero. Tom, what does Jacqueline Jager have to say about KPMG? Jay, KPMG continues to just stumble and trip all over itself in the United Kingdom. Two uh, enforcement actions were concluded uh, this week that Jacqueline reported on. Conviviality involved a severe reprimand for uh, KPMG for breaches and audits. Uh, the uh, audit partner uh, was also fined. These were not intentional, dishonest, or deliberate, but nevertheless, uh, conviviality really pulled the wool over the eyes of um, KPMG. I love KPMG's response, Jay. Uh, Chief Executive KPMG in the UK said, quote, I'm sorry our work wasn't good enough in this instance, end quote. Well, I'm sorry you're sorry, but I'm sorry it's not good enough. Another settlement was perhaps a little more troubling was Regenerous, and here we had the audit partner um, in conviviality. The audit partner was fined some 85,000 pounds. In the Regenerous matter, we had the audit partner suspended for three years for making false and misleading information uh, into, uh, rather, to the inspections. The here we had much more serious conduct. We had misrepresentations and non-cooperation in the investigation. And our friend Mr. Holt said, quote, KPMG CEO, Mr. Holt, that is, said the misconduct is a violation of our process and clearly goes against our values, end quote. Um, pretty clear it wasn't clear to KPMG that they shouldn't engage in lying, cheating, and stealing. So, uh, KPMG just continues to get into trouble in the United Kingdom, uh, yet more uh, fines and penalties. Um, have to wonder uh, when it's going to end, but uh, very troubling, uh, both of these. Nevertheless, uh, at least uh, we have them resolved. So, Jay, um, who's the person of the year in compliance, according to Mike Volkoff, at least? Thanks, Tom. This comes to us from Mike's Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. And a couple weeks ago, he gave his predictions on what were going to be happening in 2022 in trends. And this where he nominates the person of the year as environmental, social, and governance, which we all call ESG. One of Mike's favorite New Year postings is under the title of person of the year. And in the past, he's singled out chief compliance officers, chief executive officers, prosecutors, and even whistleblowers. But for 2021, he says the choice is obvious. The most important trend is the rise of environmental, social, and governance ESG programs. In second place, he would choose supply chain management and risk due to the importance of the supply chain during the post-pandemic world. In the end, ESG dominated the headlines and earned annual recognition as the issue of the year. While Mike continues to believe that ethics and compliance should not, should not lead a corporate ESG program, the E&C function continues to benefit from corporate focus on ESG, and in particular, on the need to address the G, the governance part. In this respect, ethics and compliance has an opportunity to leverage ESG as a way to elevate ethics and compliance function. 
Compliance officers have a unique skill set that sits well within the ESG framework. Compliance officers have line of sight across an organization and expertise in crafting internal compliance controls to mitigate risks. Like compliance, ESG programs depend on line of sight across the organization. Given the similarity in skill sets, many professionals believe that compliance should include ESG responsibilities in their remit. Mike's concern is simple. Ethics and compliance officers already have huge responsibilities for a company's ethical culture and program. CCOs cannot take on more responsibility. As a result, a dedicated ESG officer is a minimum requirement. ESG, however, is a movement that reflects growing public and investor demands. Corporate leaders have to focus beyond quarterly financial reporting and respond to a broad menu of stakeholders' demands. The landscape for corporate governance is undergoing a radical transformation. Social and environmental issues compete with traditional financial, compliance, and operational demands. While this reformation is occurring, Corporate leaders are having to balance difficult issues while maintaining stakeholder support. The evolution is a positive development and will benefit CCOs because of the important responsibility to protect a company's reputation. Corporate compliance fits neatly into the ESC perspective. Investors and stakeholders are demanding corporate dedication to environmental sustainability, social issues, and corporate governance. To increase access to capital, companies have to dedicate themselves to these new principles. An ESG program has to include the CCO as a strategic partner. Working together, ESG and CCOs can apply common solutions to design and implement policies, procedures, and controls to accomplish an effective ESG and ethics and compliance program. While the objective may differ, the means to accomplish their respective goals include common techniques and approach to build company-wide support. ESG is here to stay. Corporate leaders need to expand their perspective and address important stakeholder issues, including ethics and compliance as part of the government component. As a new and important objective, ESG is set to reshape the corporate landscape. Tom, we've got another article from the FCPA blog. What's on Vera Sharapanova's mind? Earlier this week, I should say, Vera Sharapanova, a colleague from across the pond who practices compliance in Europe at Studio Etica, uh, wrote a really interesting article about behavioral risk and behavioral psychology. And I should have started off by saying, I hope you understand the reference, Jay. I really do. Uh, And if you don't know what Abby Normal is, well, you didn't grow up in the 70s. So Abby Normal comes to compliance. And um, you're going to have to email me if you don't know what that reference is. But it's one of the great references of all time. Marty Feldman. Very good. Igor? Movie name? Oh, Young Frankenstein. Very good. You hit the trifecta. Uh, Nevertheless, Vera wrote about banks. She'd been looking at this for about six months or so and been thinking about it. She finally wrote an article. had the chance to visit with her today a little bit earlier on it, and uh, we're going to have a podcast on it 
uh, in February on the FCPA compliance report where we take a little bit deeper dive into it. But banks are using behavioral psychologists to help change their culture. And I found this really interesting, Jay. Even more interesting was that she said all of the banks she talked to, the behavioral psychologists came in to work for the bank and continue to work for the bank in the department of internal audit, which stunned me, frankly. I uh, not thought internal audit would do anything that uh, had a behavioral anything in front of it. Nevertheless, uh, they're doing it. They're working to change culture in a bank. And we talked about whether uh, does culture change come from the top? Because I think you and I have probably thought that was true and it kind of percolates down. But what uh, she found from her research into this said that you can actually change culture from the top, excuse me, from the bottom. And she pointed out three things that are being done, behavioral risk assessments, which are really more than uh, surveys because you're looking at the entire employee life cycle, recruitment incentives, and performance management. Uh, An interesting thing that we're going to have to explore a little bit further, Jay, which is called targeted subculture audits. Instead of looking at a culture audit from a holistic one-company perspective, uh, there's granularity in different subcultures within an organization, whether it be departmental, whether it be geographic, whether it be functional or any other way. And then uh, training, incorporating behavioral change with interventions, uh, changing architecture, reinforcing experience, and even nudging in a term I had not heard before called sludging. So uh, lots to think about in this article. Uh, Vera said she's doing additional research and she's going to be coming out with a paper or two down the road on this. But uh, really, really interesting. Um, if you uh, listeners may recall me talking about a Wei Chin speech where when asked who should be in the compliance department of the future, she talked about behavioral psychologists. So here we have specific examples of financial institutions doing this in response to culture as far back as the 0809 financial crisis, but also uh, the continued enforcement actions against banks for a variety of issues, AML, tax fraud, uh, bribery and corruption. So an interesting experiment that I think we're going to have to, to follow a little bit long, Jay. Uh, Jay, we had, a I thought, a very interesting article on the Biden administration's strategy on countering corruption, but really, what does it mean for the business businessman? What did you see in this article? So this comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insights, from a trio of attorneys from Eversheds, Sarah Paul, Andrea Gordon, and Dane Sowers. So the federal game plan is out. Businesses now have an opportunity to anticipate the regulations and enforcements coming down the pike. On December 6th of 2021, the Biden administration issued a U.S. strategy on countering corruption, which assessed current anti-corruption efforts and detailed the administration's approach to preventing domestic and foreign corruption. It also ran down lines of LOE, lines of effort, to benchmark its progress. While the strategy is wide-ranging, four themes repeatedly appear throughout. First, the importance of the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. Second, increasing individual accountability for corrupt conduct. Next, the need to focus on the demand side of bribery. And finally, a commitment to international cooperation and global enforcement. This article discussed the themes and the strategies related to LOEs, 
along with takeaways for companies to consider in administration endeavors to implement a series of robust anti-corruption efforts for the year and beyond. Here's the key takeaway from AML. Companies should monitor other anticipated FinCEN activities, which may affect their compliance programs and reporting obligations. The AML Act required FinCEN to take several actions by January 1, 2022. However, FinCEN has fallen short in meeting some of these deadlines. The authors expect another surge in FinCEN activity this year as the agency races to satisfy its AML requirements. Key takeaway number two, individual accountability for corrupt conduct. The administration's emphasis on individual accountability should strongly encourage management and those in gatekeeper roles at companies to proactively evaluate their company's compliance programs and promptly remediate any identified issues. Third, demand-side bribery. Companies should consider the DOJ's use of existing laws to combat those who demand or solicit bribes and monitor potential legislation that would enact new laws. And finally, key takeaway number four, international cooperation. Companies should consider the ever-increasing cooperation, coordination, and information sharing between the U.S. and foreign regulators when conducting internal investigations, including when considering privilege issues and assessing whether to self-disclose to regulator. The authors expect significant corruption activity in 2022 as the administration attempts to fulfill the strategy and its related LOEs. Companies should keep a close watch on progress. Tom, first visit of the year from our good friend Jeff Kaplan. What's on his mind? Before we hear from Jeff Kaplan, we're going to have a quick message from our sponsor. So Jeff had a really interesting, uh, very, very small post, and it was about an article on climate change, but from the compliance perspective, Jay, he references a soon-to-be-published law review, uh, Iowa Law Review article, um, and in this, it advocates that compliance is the corporate function that should lead uh, an ESG effort, but here they're talking about specifically climate change and that the article contends that climate change is actually a compliance issue, and that while scholars may have overlooked compliance as a solution, uh, now it's recognized that a compliance-based approach is the best rationale for holding corporations responsible for climate change, and the article provides a robust framework for achieving those goals. So uh, Jeff adds that the full promise of compliance and ethics program goes beyond the business realm to nurturing habits of the mind, and that's certainly a great phrase uh, that we in the compliance profession should embrace. We're not doing good simply to do good. Uh, we're doing good because it's good business. And that, uh, when you couple that with uh, the article I'm going to talk about uh, in a moment um, on institutional investors and ESG voting, you see that a wide variety of business people believe that not only is climate change an important goal, but it makes your company more profitable, which we'll go into. So it's going to be very interesting when the final law review article is um, uh, released. I hope to be able to get the authors on for a pod. Uh, Jay, is trust having a moment? 
according to Stuart Levine and Forbes, it definitely is, and I agree. Over the past two years, the impact of COVID-19 and the Omicron virus combined with massive workforce resignation has created a brand new world reality. The workforce has stopped, paused, and taken a breath. Significant numbers of people are resigning from their jobs due to the lack of values alignment, lack of clarity around the purpose of the work, overwork and dreadful environments, and the inability to find childcare. People are now prioritizing beliefs over money. The human capital's equation has never been more precise or scarce. The Great Resignation Movement reflects close to 500 people in the U.S. who have left the workforce. This is a recommendation, reflection of companies not understanding and meeting employee needs. More than 25% of employees today do not believe that their physical and mental well-being are being recognized and cared for by their companies where they work. With younger generations thinking about what they truly want to do with their lives and with older generations concerned about their own mortality, more and more people are stopping to smell the roses and reevaluate and realign their life with their values. And statistics have shown that money is no longer a driving factor or the most driving factor. Those CEOs and businesses who are focused on their organization's purpose and mission, as well as core values and belief, will weather this storm that is changing the landscape permanently. The employee is now in charge, and it's up to leadership to understand and respond to how employees are thinking. Today's workforce has no tolerance for lack of trust. CEOs and leadership that align their actions with their values will prevail. These used to be buzzwords, but no more. Strategic communication from leadership that creates linkage to values and ethics will not only affirm a foundation for innovation, but will ensure retention of employees and customers. Board CEOs and senior leaders must have a continual focus on the values and clarity of their organization's mission. The culture of an organization follows. The importance of culture has never been more important. Repetition of values translates words into behaviors, and leadership must share their thinking on an ongoing basis and walk the talk. People today know the difference. They watch, they observe, and they understand. We teach communications, and preparation for communication is not only respectful of people's times, but enables you to focus your thoughts in a meaningful way and get better outcomes. The crafting of agendas that are well thought out screams out respect. And anybody who wants to be a CEO today must be able to execute strategic communication. It's no longer just about managing the financial reports or keeping the stock at a certain level. The new focus is on creation of trust. The most difficult thing to do is to look in the mirror and have an honest conversation about your own actions and the impact they have on others. We don't always have a good hair day. But understanding this and being honest about it can help move the metrics forward in the areas of trust. This world is based upon human relationships. The only way to build meaningful ones are through trusting ongoing conversations. This is both true personally and professionally. So what does it take to do this? Well, focus on your end goals and shared values. You will then be able to strengthen your ability to achieve desired outcomes. It's your actions every single day. Trust is the basis for collaboration, innovation, and success. Life is more challenging than ever, 
but by pushing yourself to continue to learn and to grow, it makes life meaningful and joyful. Whether it's about sustainability, technology, or human connectivity, do it or get left behind. It's your choice to make today. Tom, what's Lauren's time thinking about in, with ESG this week? Well, Jay, I talked about in uh, my last section about how uh, various stakeholders are moving towards seeing ESG as a business positive. Well, here we have two institutional uh, investor groups, State Street Global and Vanguard, issuing statements about their ESG expectations for holdings and proxy voting plans for 2021. And in climate disclosure, um, uh, State Street Global, I had a chance to visit with Ben Colton yesterday. Once again, I'll post that uh, podcast uh, down the road on my ESG report. Uh, But in climate disclosure, uh, SSGA, State Street Global, is looking for uh, more and uh, more rigorous climate disclosures in general and specifically addressing climate transition plans that companies might have. And then he said something I thought really interesting, Jay. He, uh, he being State Street Global, do not want to see uh, divestiture. They want to see engagement. And they don't want investiture because typically it's a, uh, the carbon-emitting or a high-carbon footprint business unit will be sold to private equity. And then there's really no... Uh, public company oversight like there is with State Street Global. And State Street does engage with uh, the companies it invests in. And the best example I could point you to is yesterday, Exxon announced a climate goal of uh, carbon neutral by 2050. Well, uh, that came partly in dialogue with institutional investors like State Street Global. Uh, So they are having an engagement they are having engagement uh, that ter- makes real results. But it's not just climate. There's Remember, there's an E and a G and an S uh, in ESG. And uh, around uh, human rights, uh, uh, State Street Global is going to have boards play a more active and direct role around human rights uh, as talent and talent acquisition as well. So how does the board oversee risk related to human rights? What human rights? human rights-related risks, uh, does a company consider material? Uh, How does the company manage and mitigate those risks? And how does a company assess the effectiveness of its human rights management program? So um, lots to to think about. And from Lawrence's uh, article, where he details highlights from both State Street Global and Vanguard's release of proxy voting strategies, I would, I would encourage every compliance officer to take a look at these, Jay, and then to see, uh, use them as a benchmark. Uh, are these how your climate disclosures are being governed? Uh, are, is your board taking these issues uh, seriously? Uh, you can put forward these. And once again, uh, I think it speaks directly to why compliance needs to take the lead in these because many of these, Jays are, are directly compliance-related issues. So, Jay, what's our uh, our final story this week? Uh, for the second week in a row, we return to NYU Law School's program on corporate compliance and enforcement. In the compliance and enforcement part of it, we've got a story from a couple of attorneys from Clary Gottlieb, Jeffrey Karp, and Fernando Martinez. And the article's entitled, Returning to the Future of Work, Considerations for the Virtual Boardroom in the Post-Pandemic Era. And a lot of the articles we've read today about how we're in the throes of the pandemic and how it's affected business, it's clear that the corporate workplace has changed for good. 
as the world continues to reopen and companies return to the office, what we are returning to is not business as usual, but a new future of work, a future characterized by a shift from traditional workplace to remote and hybrid models that provide opportunities to work in effective and efficient ways. The initial response to COVID-19 taught public company boardrooms important lessons. After getting through the initial hurdles and the repeated exclamations of, you're on mute, it sank in that future of the work, including for boards and directors, would be transformed into a hybrid, in-person, and virtual approach. Virtual boardrooms can increase directors' levels of involvement, enhance collaboration with management, and provide several overall benefits, which include increased attendance and reduced travel, shorter agendas and crisper presentations, more inclusive and focused conversations, and broader exposure to key executives and experts. While there are clear benefits to the virtual boardroom, unique challenges also arise. Directors must navigate the future of work should they consider the potential drawbacks that may come with an over-reliance on the virtual approach. Hybrid meetings come in different shapes and sizes, and boards should consider the particular advantages. One hybrid approach is combining in-person and virtual, with some directors meeting in person and others joining remotely. This approach allows for directors in the room to build personal relationships without sacrificing attendance as directors unable to travel can join remotely. Another hybrid approach would involve having a certain number of in-person meetings a year while the rest could be held virtually. Complex and more strategic discussions could be saved for in-person meetings, while issues that were dealt with on a more regular basis or more time-sensitive matters could have been others dealt with, excuse me, have been dealt with telephonically or remote. In either scenario, companies with hybrid meetings should be mindful of how their director attendance defines attendance, rather their policy defines attendance, and ensure that remote meeting attendance fulfills the requirement of the policy. Boards can take several approaches to maximize engagement of efficiency. They can maximize preparedness and discussion, monitor engagement, focus on timing, manage technology, and recreate in person. Regardless of the specific approach boards take, it is crucial that they build upon the lessons from pandemic on risk and oversight preparedness. An effective board is an informed board, and directors should understand the entire ecosystem in which their companies operate. As companies adapt and make changes, it's important to ensure that there's a robust reporting system and controls in place for the board to keep them informed of key developments, including plans for reopening and returning traditional workforce. How companies approach returning to the office and adapting to the future of the work can have long-lasting impacts. Aside from developing ways to maximize the benefits of remote and hybrid work, boards should play a role in working with management to clearly define a return-to-office strategy that properly accounts for the importance of workplace culture, but at the same time can be flexible enough towards the future of work. So, Tom, that, that ends the article part. It seems like you are doing more and more podcasts as the year goes on. Um, first up, you and Tom, you and Matt Kelly have concluded a two-part series on key issues that you're following in 2022, and you can find this on the Impli- Compliance into the Weeds soundtrack. Excuse me, the the Compliance and Weeds 
section, and we link to it in the show notes for part one and two. Uh, This week in January, we started back the Compliance Live. Can you tell us a bit about your conversations with Valerie Charles? Sure, Valerie Charles. In uh, episode two, she moved over to GAN Integrity. Well, in episode three, she moves over to Stone Turn. She's a partner at Stone Turn, and she talks about how she's used her in-house private practice and then ComTech knowledge in um, her consulting practice at uh, Stone Turn. Uh, Jay, I don't know if you've seen uh, the Joel Cohen production of Macbeth. It's out on Apple TV. I watched it this past week and was literally blown away by it. And I was so blown away, I ended up writing a week's podcast series, or excuse me, blog post series on it, uh, where I looked at transformation of various aspects of a compliance program. And I looked at it through the characters uh, in Macbeth, the Cohen production first, the overall structure of what he did, which was just surreal and minimalist at the same time. Two, Denzel Washington's performance. Uh, three, uh, Francis uh, McDormand's performance as Lady Macbeth. And then today, um, Catherine Hudson, who played all three of the three sisters or three witches, uh, depending on your perspective. Uh, and I talk about her role, which uh, I thought was the, the top role of the, uh, uh, of the performance. And uh, as a preview for our Everything Compliance recording tomorrow, Jay, I'm going to shout out to the performance and start some, uh, not start some, but continue some Oscar buzz for it. Uh, Jay, I'm extraordinarily proud to announce that next week I'll be premiering a new podcast series, uh, Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, where together with Lauren Steffi, who was the Houston Chronicle business columnist during the Enron Trial, which occurred in 2006, we're going to talk about the Enron Trial. A little about the background of Enron, obviously, but not uh, really focusing on the fall of Enron, but really on the trial. It's going to be a great series. Uh, great production work from One Stone Creative. I'm really looking forward uh, to that podcast series. It comes out next, premieres on Monday and Monday through Friday. And then, of course, today, uh, January 21st, is day 21 of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. If you want to find out the latest on design, creating, and implementing a best practices compliance program, I hope you'll check out my series, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, uh, each day at noon on the Compliance Podcast Network. So, Jay, with that, back to you. Yes, Jay, uh, I um, uh, published by CCI, uh, Sarah Haddon, uh, the Year in Review and Compliance and FCPA. Uh, Sarah asked me if I would write a year in review, and I was happy to do so. So uh, in addition to coming out with uh, a new addition to the Compliance Handbook, which will be out in June from LexisNexis, I had uh, this published through CCI. Uh, Sarah provides it at no cost. So if you'd like a review of 2021 of compliance, of FCPA, and frankly, of a wide variety of other topics, check it out on CCI. Extraordinarily pleased. A big shout out to Sarah for uh, putting it out there uh, literally at no cost. Uh, it's available in the digital ebook only. Uh, so check out uh, FCPA, the 2021 year in review available on CCI, which we've uh, also linked to in the show notes, Jay. Great. Thanks for sharing that with our listeners and viewers. So uh, I'm going to bring this guy home. 
uh, or this podcast home. As you know, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance. He can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedbonners.com. And we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 287 for the week ending January 21st, 2022, the Activision Blizzard Sold Edition. We'd like to thank you for spending some of your day or your weekend with us, and we look forward to talking to you next week when we take a look at This Week and FCPA. Tom, have a great weekend. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I'm pleased to announce a very special podcast project, which will premiere on Monday, January 24th, on the Compliance Podcast Network. Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial. In this five-part podcast series, I'm co-hosting with Lauren Steffi. Lauren is a business journalist who was the Houston Chronicle business columnist during the Enron Trial. He covered the Enron Trial, and we do a podcast series based upon his articles and reflections. We look back at the Enron Trial, not really the fall of Enron, and what the trial meant for corporate governance, indeed, all the way to ESG today. It's a fabulous series that I know you'll enjoy. Lauren is a great storyteller, as you may guess. It will be on the greetings and felicitations feed on the Compliance Podcast Network. So check out the trial of the century, the Enron trial, next week. And I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we look at stories from this week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.